You are listening to Radio. I wanted to uh, give a very, very warm introduction to Dr. Vandana Shiva. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Scott, and thank you to Boom um, for inviting me. I don't do music. I try and listen to nature's music, and I try to defend it ferociously and fiercely with all my energies. Um, if you add an I to Boom and put a B instead of a B, Bhumi is the Sanskrit word for the earth. And so I thought uh, today, which is dedicated to um, the boundaries of behavior, boundaries of activism, um, the best I can do is share with you now nearly four decades of my activism in defense of the earth and where we are at. This thing is booming a lot. Can they just... And, you know, the program that was given to us uh, for the festival says the art of living is the art of flowing like water. Uh, I don't know how many of you are aware that the word Sharia, which today is treated as a really bad word, the literal translation of Sharia, which is the Muslim law, is the way of water. That you have to live on the earth following the water. Because through that, you have to respect others in this place where Boom is organized. And the oak tree takes me back to my own region, different species of oak. Um, but we too have the Himalayan oak. And my first engagement with the um, with activism, you know, I'm basically a quantum theorist. That's what my training is. I used to just work with the psi function, you know, a bit like the trident of Shiva, so cut through it. Um, and uh, then the forests of our region started to disappear. I'd grown up in these forests. I saw the streams and rivers go dry. And then women of our region rose spontaneously. Illiterate women, never been to school, couldn't write a word. They taught me, India, and the whole world about ecology at that time, the links between forest and water. And uh, they came out defending the oak and the rhododendron and uh, the natural forests, singing songs, saying these beautiful oaks give us milk in the leaves because the cattle get to eat it as fodder and they give us water in their roots. Most of the springs in our region and I'm sure in this region come from native vegetation because as the leaves of the native vegetation fall they build up humus the humus is the biggest water reservoir of the world, and we think reservoirs have to be built of cement. 
but the largest water holding takes place in soil rich in organic matter. And that's where the streams came from. So as the forests were being cut, the streams disappeared. And women were walking longer distance. And at a certain point, they said, no, you've got to stop cutting these trees. And the movement was beautiful because, and the name killed the tree. And that's how in 1981, we got a logging ban in the central Himalaya where the Ganges emerges from. I think it was one of the first contemporary serious radical achievements of people totally at the grassroots. Now, as I look at the oak here, I also looked at the eucalyptus driving up from Lisbon. And I think the oak and the eucalyptus, in a way, tell us about the two worlds that are in contest today. The oak's branches turn back to the earth and say, I will give back to you. And they do. In the areas around here, if you're in a patch with oak forests, they are beautiful grass. I've seen animals grazing. I've seen sheep grazing. All kinds of activities can take place with the oak. If you watch the eucalyptus, first of all, it goes like that. It's totally linear. It doesn't have a canopy. Can you imagine trees without canopies? You know, we wouldn't have shade if this was a eucalyptus plantation. But what's worst about the eucalyptus is growing in arid areas like this, it actually creates a desert. One of my earliest studies in 1980 was on how the eucalyptus was drying up streams and tanks and lakes in southern India because the World Bank had given a huge grant to convert farmlands to eucalyptus plantations. Now we had created a word called social forestry during the Chipko movement. And we said so far forestry has been commercial. It's been about this much square foot of timber moving out. Every time you cut a tree, you create growth. Every time you save a tree, you obstruct growth. Um, and we said, no, what we need is social forestry, forestry that serves society, forestry that's guided by centuries of women's wisdom of the different species and their functions. So the bank took our word of social forestry and started to put monoculture eucalyptus plantations. All of the eucalyptus was going to one pulp factory. One pulp factory. But it was giving huge returns to the bank for its lending. The other ways in which the eucalyptus takes away water, I call it the water thief. If the oak is the generator of water, then the eucalyptus is a water thief. Because we've done studies and one tree, which wouldn't be just a little wider than this bamboo, its roots will reach all the way to the stage. It won't let anything else grow, because if you get very little rain, it requires 1,200 millimeters. And if you have less than that, and it grabs every drop of water, not a blade of grass can grow. If you have um, farms nearby, no food crops can grow. 
The oak stands for service to the earth. The eucalyptus stands for the dominant culture that is determined on exploiting the earth by taking away the share of other species, other beings, future generations. And even here, I'm sure the eucalyptus is growing. I remember the Portuguese asked me for a for our report so they could translate it. This is way back in 1980. Most of you were not born then. Um, and all it's doing, all it's serving is a supply to a, of raw material to industry. It's fine in its original forests and in its diversities in Australia. But planted anywhere else, whether it's chopping down the Amazon forest to grow eucalyptus plantations, or here, or in India. And we stopped these plantations in India. And that's when looking at this very pathetic linear tree, can't build back organic matter, has no soil, no species, in so no soil organisms. Because, you know, we, we use eucalyptus oil for coals because they kill bacteria. That's what it's doing in the root zone, killing off all the soil organisms. So you have no soil organisms, you have no water, none of the things that trees are supposed to do for us. And that's when I started to realize that humanity is starting to um, suffer from a disease, which I have named the monoculture of the mind, where in your head, you only see monotony. And then you transform the world in the image of what's in your head. So you can't tolerate the freedom and diversity that the planet needs and people need. This is also happening in agriculture. Um, 1984, in India we had two very, very big disasters. The first, was the rise of violent extremism in the state of Punjab. Punjab means the five rivers. Punj, five, ab, water. Abadi, where people settle. Boom is a new abadi around the water, around the lake. Because you can't live without water, so settlements come up around water. Punjab, because of the five rivers, is where they took chemical agriculture, which was introduced to countries like India, in the name of the Green Revolution. This revolution was neither, this was neither green nor revolutionary. All it was was obsolete war technologies introduced to agriculture. Technologies for killing people became pesticides. Technologies for killing vegetation like the Viet Cong in Vietnam became the herbicides, Agent Orange. It's, three, four, it's 243D sold as a herbicide. Explosive factories became manufacturing factories for fertilizer. And I must give you an anecdote or two. There was a bombing in Oklahoma of the state building. I think about 10 years ago, it's called the Oklahoma bombing. Guess what that bomb was made of? It was a fertilizer bomb. And a few months ago, 
I had given a talk and then there was a dinner and there was this very high level person sitting next to me with strong links to international security. And he said, it's interesting you mentioned this about the fertilizers coming out of the bomb factories because the reason they're not able to control the Taliban in Afghanistan is the US aid distributed so much fertilizer now they're making bombs out of that fertilizer. They said, with Saddam Hussein, we knew what weapons he had. You know, they were weapons he bought from us. But the Afghans are killing us with the fertilizer we gave to them. And it's in every hut, in every village. And that's one reason they just can't control this violence. Um, so basically what's called the Green Revolution was extending war into our food production after the Great Wars had ended. And that's why these wars continue to kill. We had the Bhopal disaster in 1984. 3,000 people were killed in one night because of a leak from a pesticide plant. 30,000 have been killed since then. The water of Bhopal is still contaminated with the toxics from this pesticide factory, which is now owned by Dow Chemicals. And children are being born deformed because of those toxics. Uh, my Bhopal friends are sitting in Delhi right now, protesting. Every year they come back for justice. Every year they come back for justice. Guess what the compensation was per person? $250. $250. But that was a $500, $460 million compensation. Now they want to introduce nuclear plants with a liability limit of $100 million, no matter how big a disaster. So what we have is an interesting socialism for corporations selling poisons, nukes, pesticides, and imposed rogue capitalism on the rest of the world. Because, you know, when elephants go crazy and stop living in community, they're called rogue elephants. Corporations have gone crazy and have lost the ability to live in community. I call them rogue corporations. And one of the worst, in my views, has the same name as that beautiful sacred mountain which Rita was generous enough to drive me to just before I came here. Monsanto, the sacred mountain, is the name of Monsanto, the worst company selling toxic food, GMOs, and trying to patent every life form on Earth. I started to fight them from the day they entered India in 1997. Now, they've changed America's laws, so there are no laws. They've taken over the White House. Everyone who sits in the White House is a Monsanto person. We had the green revolution, now we have the genetic engineering revolution. What happens when a company like Monsanto starts taking control over using, selling, distributing what is patented? And I believe it is our duty when we are born on this earth to save seed, to give seed back to the earth. Seed means that which gives rise to life. It's Hindi or Sanskrit name is Bija. Ja is life. Bija is that in which life resides and arises on its own forever.
seed is the embodiment of life itself, of evolution, both cultural and biological. And now Monsanto says, no, I am your creator and the farmers will pay me royalties. So when they entered India, two things happened. They came first with cotton, a cotton which has a gene for producing a toxic in the plant. So now it's a pesticide factory. The plant is its own pesticide factory. Of course, anyone with basic sense will know if the pollen has poison, the butterflies will die. This is where the soil organisms will die. Studies we do show that. 24% disappearance in four years of planting. If there's poison in the plant, and if cattle eat it, the animals will die. They die. So what we started to do was both take this company to court, but more importantly, build alternatives. The real sacred alternatives of saving seed. And that's how I've built Navdanya over the last 20 years. Navdanya means nine seeds, but it also means the new gift. Because while patent laws called intellectual property laws are basically saying the seed is Monsanto's creation and monopoly, we are basically saying that seed is a gift of nature and the earth. It's a gift from our ancestors who bred these seeds. And it is our duty to continue to save them. So we follow Gandhi very, very intimately. We follow Gandhi in the idea that small actions can have very, very far-reaching impacts. When Gandhi wanted to find the British Empire at that point in India, he did not build huge weapon factories. He pulled out a spinning wheel. And you know, at that time, people had stopped spinning in India because all the cloth for the world was being made in Manchester and Lancashire. The slaves in US were helping grow the cotton plantations. In India too, we had near slavery. Near slavery, we were growing the, the blue, that, uh, the indigo that gives the blue dye. And when Gandhi came back from South Africa as a lawyer, he realized that if we do not relearn how to make our own things, we'll always be enslaved. So he found one old spinning wheel in a hut of an 80-year-old woman. And he said, mother, will you teach me how to spin? And then he started to teach people how to spin. And when people laughed at him and said, how do you think that a few pieces of, of wood can bring India freedom? And he said, only this can, because it's so small. And it can be put together by anyone that everyone, the last person of this country, can defend our freedom. And so I learned the value of the small from our independence movement. And said, if we have to fight giants like Monsanto, who now control the entire seed supply of the world, and all they have been able to do is put two toxic traits into crops. One is put the poison into the plant, and the other is put a gene so you can spray more herbicides, which they call Roundup. And it's interesting. 
If you look at the names of herbicides or pesticides, it's Roundup, Squadron, Machete. It's all names of war because they are creating war against nature. Does it give us more food? No, it uses more food. We save seeds, we do organic farming. I also do a lot of measuring of production. And the more diverse your system, the more ecological your system, and the smaller your farm, the higher the production. We can grow up to 10 tons of food per acre with diversity. Diversity is not a problem, it's a gift. That's what creates abundance. But that disease of monoculture of the mind that creates blindness, if all you can see is eucalyptus, you will never see the grass that the oak allows to grow. If all you see is soya, because the biggest globally traded commodity now, you will never see the hundreds of kinds of pulses and dals that we have in India. You will not be able to see the 200,000 rice varieties we had, of which we have saved 3,000. And these varieties are amazing. You know, the entire breeding was based on how much can you take out of the soil, out of the earth, and send out for trading. And most of this food trade is not increasing production. It's just one big swap. The same commodity is carried in two ways and is contributing to growth. We saved rices. We just saved everything. I said we won't let anything go to extinction because if the earth gave a space for this species or this variety, it needs a space in the future, like every culture needs a space in the future. We saved varieties of rice that could tolerate salt. And then with climate change, we started to have more virulent cyclones and hurricanes. But we have the seeds that could deal with the saline water that the sea brings. And you know, the average rate of cyclones in India used to be 100 to 150 kilometers per hour. Now it's 350 to 400. So it goes much further inland and the salt water is brought in. We are able to rejuvenate agriculture because we have these seeds. After the tsunami, we were able to bring back agriculture in Tamil Nadu. The Indonesians came and took the seed from us, and they're having such good production, they want more. We just have to arrange to get seeds across national boundaries. Drought is, you know, Pakistan is drowning in floodwaters right now. But eastern India, which is supposed to be the wet part of South Asia, has no rain. Not last year, not this year. Not a drop of rain. But the old seeds we have of millets, which are nutritious, they're delicious, but they have been treated badly. They've been treated badly because I believe there's a racism, even in the way we think about food. So the horrible white sugar from industry is treated as superior to the wonderful brown jaggery that is the natural form of a sweetener. Or super refined white bread that gives you diabetes is treated as superior to the brown from the different grains. And this superiority of the white pushed to extinction every grain that was nutritious, tasty, delicious, and could withstand drought and scarcity of water, just because it was brown and black. 
So we do a lot of food festivals. And for me, you know, good, good food has its own music on our palate. You can make the difference. Sound is one way in which we sense the world. And you are celebrating sound. But taste is another way. Sight is another way. We are given five senses. Each of those senses teaches us to listen to the harmony and beauty and music that nature has created. And the more we are aware of these harmonies, the more we are aware of this music, we know bombarding it with a gene through a gene gun for genetic engineering is also war at the genetic level. You are listening to Radio. The beauty about this real Monsanto, I'll call the other thing the fake Monsanto. The real Monsanto, this little village up on the hill, it's so... I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity to go up there, but they have allowed the rocks their place. And they've said to them, it's a sacred mountain, when something is sacred, one, you have a relationship with it, two is, you don't violate it. Sacred is inviolable, so you don't violate it. They, have, they treat their mountain as sacred, so they haven't blasted the rock with dynamite. And today, those works of art, you know, the homes are built adapting to the rock. Amazing work of art. One of the big issues of our times is the intolerance to the way of water, intolerance to the way of nature, because nature's way is the way of water. We are sitting in this very, very beautiful space with this wonderful bamboo, with this wonderful mud sculptures. Um, and each of these materials has a story about water. 1982, I was invited by a ministry to assess the mining of limestone. You know, I'm in a valley, and on the top are hills, the, the Himalayan, the first range of the Himalaya. And as you know, the Himalaya was real, is really the bottom of the ocean. And with the plates moving, it started to rise. And today, the, the bottom of the ocean, which has the purest of uh, limestone, is sitting at 8,000 feet. Industry wants that pure limestone. So they started to blast and erode, and illegally to start with. And there was disaster. The spring started to dry. Landslides started to wash away entire villages. On the top of the limestone were beautiful oak forests. The forests went just rag, ragged scratches of white on this mountain slope. So our Ministry of Environment asked me to look at the <clears throat> impact. And one thing I've learned in life is you can do a PhD in physics. You know very little about the real world. And I, I've learned that the first people who know best are the people who have to live in a situation. As we say, the only person who knows where the shoe pinches is the one who's wearing the shoe. You can't tell someone else your shoe is pinching. Only I can know if my shoe is pinching. So I always, the first thing I do is go to local communities, especially the women. 
and they'll tell you like that what's going on, not in scientific language, but in the basic elements. So I went to the villages, I said, what's the issue in mining? Everyone else was talking about the looks because we are a big tourist state. Everyone said the mountains look ugly. And the, you know, the green has gone and the miners painted the mountains green and said, see, not, green, not white anymore, now it's back to green. Now that is fake green. Paint does not replace ecological functions. So the women said it's water. And sure enough, limestone, especially when it's cracked like that with the plates meeting, it fissures. Over the centuries, drops of water carve out giant-sized caves. In those caves, the rocks hold the water. That's why if you look at any limestone zone, it's full of streams. Streams are bountiful. So the more we use cement, the more we are killing water. And unfortunately, the cementization of the world is another disease. I mean, it's brought poor Spain down. They built so much cement because there were so much loans and there was so much good real estate and there was so much borrowing possible and um, the mortgage industry hadn't collapsed. They just built and built and built till they're collapsing now. And they've gone absolutely bust because of the cement industry and the construction industry. <coughs> we have this beautiful bamboo work. Bamboo is one of the most amazing, resilient, flexible materials and strong. All of Northeast India, all homes are built of bamboo. Now, if it was not a boom festival, if the organizers weren't imaginative, we would be having pillars of aluminium. Yeah? I am helping a group of tribals defending another sacred mountain whose name is Niam Giri. Niam means the law and Giri means the mountain. The mountain that upholds the universal law. This mountain is their sacred teacher. It's their God. It's their divine. But it's a mountain made of bauxite. Bauxite is the raw material for aluminium. Bauxite is also a conserver of water like limestone. So out of this one mountain come two rivers and 36 streams. They support 100,000 people around that zone. And on the mountain itself are two of the most ancient tribes of India. The one that lives up on the mountain is called the Dongriya Kond. Dong means up on the mountain, the Kond is their tribe. Since this mountain was identified for mining for bauxite, they've been saying you can't touch our sacred mountain. <clears throat> and just like Monsanto, the toxic company that's hijacking our food supply, has a name Monsanto, has a name called Vedanta. Veda, you know, Vedanta means beyond the Vedas, knowledge so deep that even it's higher than the Vedas. This company is run by an Indian, but is a UK company. And they built an aluminium spelter at the bottom of the hill, thinking they'll get the rights to this mountain. But the tribals have won so far. We just did a big conference, very big conference. And the Dongria Kond were coming 
the company using local police abducted the tribals, didn't let them come to Delhi because in Delhi they'd be open to the world. The world would hear their voice. But we still managed through the conference to put pressure on government and the government has just put a panel out, study out saying this mountain, this sacred mountain can't be touched. So when we look at bamboo, the bamboo like the oak is giving water back to the earth. A replacement of bamboo with aluminium is robbing water and robbing life from the earth. Mud, cement, oak, eucalyptus, every sphere of life, there is an alternative that we can promote that helps nourish life. And of course it doesn't make money. Whatever goes back to the earth works in nature's economy. Nature's economy doesn't deal with cash. Nature's economy deals with life. The currency in nature is life. And I keep saying, we have to decide whether green will be the color of life or green will be the color of the dollar note. We've had a huge economic collapse and yet the system does not understand that it is destroying itself and the planet. The false illusions on which the dominant system is based. The first illusion is the illusion that people are not people. Human beings are not human beings. Fictitious legal contracts that give a company, a corporation, a legal personality is a person. Now how crazy can that be? A fiction becomes a person, real people dissolve into nothingness. And then when it's a, a company gets personhood, and if it's a Vivendi or a Swayze or a Bechtel, of course they want to privatize water. Because the more basic the issues, the more the profits. If you look at profit returns, food industry is getting 300 to 400% returns. Because food is so basic, if you destroy local food systems, people will buy whatever junk you bring them and your margins will increase. We've achieved something unprecedented in human history, that a billion people are permanently hungry, permanently hungry. We had hunger, you had a famine, you had hunger, you had a war, you had hunger. It would pass and you'd have your food again. The hunger is permanent, it's structural. Another very interesting, perverse fact is those who are going hungry are the very producers of food. They're not able to eat. Why aren't they able to eat? Because when they buy costly toxic chemicals, they buy costly seeds of Monsanto. I started to tell you about Monsanto's cotton seeds. The cotton price used to be five rupees, cotton seed price was five rupees a kilo. Monsanto came and increased it to 3,600 with its genetically engineered cotton, of which the royalty component is 2,400. And they say they're going to benefit third world farmers. They're killing third world farmers. In addition, their seeds require a lot of water. So when you don't have rain or you don't have irrigation, your crops collapse. More and more failure, therefore more and more suicides. Today we have 200,000 farm suicides in India. Restricted to the cotton belt, and all of the cotton is now GM cotton. 
I just had messages from my African friends because Kenya, Uganda, country after country is approving the genetically engineered cotton. And I'm saying, yeah, come, come to India and see what this means. And of course, you know, Europe has had this so far a resistance. But there are 80 lobbyists sitting in Brussels and the European Commission has a revolving door relationship. You know, one day a person is in Monsanto, Syngenta, next day they are in the Food Safety Authority, FSSA, European Food Safety Authority it's called, which constantly wants to push GM crops. They approved a potato, but nobody wants to eat a GM potato, so they said it's, this is not an um, edible potato. Why on earth would we want to grow inedible potatoes? When there's a food crisis, when the people are starving, these herbicide-resistant crops that are creating superweeds, 5.4 million acres of U.S. farmland gone, uncultivable because of superweeds. So what does Monsanto do? Add another toxic gene. When the poison-laden cotton stops to control pests, what do they do? Add another toxic gene. So it's Roundup Ready 2, BT2, then they'll have three. They want to go up to eight, eight toxic genes, each performing one single toxic function. And I remember Einstein, who's always been my inspiration since I was a six-year-old kid, saying, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different outcome. <laughs> That's what rogue capitalism is doing. The same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And you won't get a different outcome. The way we will get a different outcome is by shifting our consciousness, changing the way we think about the world. And while there's so much coercion, and I really say we live in an economic dictatorship, but it is our option to say no to that dictatorship, to turn our back. Gandhi gave a word to this. He called it satyagre. Satya means truth. Agre means the urge, the commitment to truth. When in South Africa they wanted to divide people by race and have identity cards, he did the first satyagre on September the 11th. September the 11th. 1901, and said, we will not be divided by race. He came to India, and when he found the, I mean, I've just been in the region in Bihar where this compulsory cultivation of indigo used to happen. People starved, they weren't allowed to grow food. They had to grow indigo. In that area, he did uh, indigo satyagraha. He did the salt satyagraha, walked to the beach, and said, the sea gives salt for free. We will continue to make it your laws will not come between nature and us. And that Satyagraha stopped the salt laws. The British needed to have the salt monopoly so like Monsanto, they could collect royalties on the salt. And we say for the patents, we don't, we don't accept patents on life because a patent is a claim to invention. Life on earth is not Monsanto's invention. It's a gift we receive. And the seeds, the waters, the grasslands, the air are our commons. Privatization of life, of seed, of water is an abuse against nature. It's an abuse against the earth. 
So we say seeds are a commons, our knowledge is a commons, our water is a commons. And if you start thinking that way, you actually generate the community energy to defend the commons. I have fought three cases on piracy of our common knowledge. The neem, which is a beautiful tree that controls pests, our basmati, a wheat that has very low gluten, and we won every one of those cases. Delhi, the water was being privatized. We organized a huge movement all the way from the mountains where the water comes from to Delhi, organized the rural and urban areas, got the women organized the, from around the dam which from where the water would come who had been displaced. We stopped the privatization of water in Delhi. It was also being driven by the World Bank. And one of the most important historical times of water privatization ending was in the city of Cochabamba in Bolivia, where again a World Bank project had given the water of Bolivia, of, of Cochabamba, to Bechtel. Bechtel is a big dam builder. It's also now a nuclear builder. The prices of water went up six times. People couldn't afford to buy water. When they would try and harvest water on their rooftops, they were told even the rain is theirs. The women in the villages, if they'd pull out water from their own wells, they were called thieves because Bechtel said the groundwater, the rainwater, all the water is now their property. Just as much as Monsanto says that when diversity grows, that diversity is stealing the sunshine, therefore you must spray Roundup and kill it. It calls biodiversity thieves of sunshine. And it calls pollinators. You know, normal good seed is open pollinated seed like open source software, yeah? If Microsoft doesn't have a patent, you can continue to innovate with the software. If Monsanto doesn't have a patent, you can innovate with seed. Now, who are our real seed breeders? They're the pollinators, the bees and the butterflies. They take pollen from one and cross with the other and give us a totally new plant, totally new properties. Long ago, when I started doing this work, a set of farmers tore down a Cargill factory, which is a Monsanto factory, for seed. And the representative said, oh, the seeds we bring are so superior, they prevent the bees from usurping the pollen. So can you imagine farmers who save seeds are thieves, bees who do their work on the planet of pollination, they are thieves. The sun shining on biodiversity is creating robbery. Everyone is a thief, except the real thief, which is stealing, including stealing the future, because they're now breeding seeds called terminator seeds, in which when the embryo of the plant is forming, which is where the life is, a lethal toxin is released and the embryo is killed. So what you get is sterile seed, and that means forever a monopoly on seed. A deliberate destruction of life through termination of life in the seed itself. Well, the Bolivia movement led to something bigger. You know, once a small group of people started to work together, the trade unionists, the women, the, the cultural associations, they drove Bechtel out. They drove the World Bank out. Then they organized higher. 
and they managed to make president an indigenous person, Eva Morales. So when Copenhagen failed, everyone said, hopeless, nothing else, we can't do anything else. You know, Copenhagen was the climate summit and the governments, the polluters, the polluters got organized a conference on climate change and the rights of Mother Earth. I was supposed to have gone, I was invited by him, but you remember there was the Iceland volcano, which blocked all the flights? Anyway, but I'm still working very closely with the Bolivians on this issue. And out of that conference came a universal declaration on the rights of Mother Earth. We all used to believe that the earth has rights. My, so my culture, you know, we worship the Ganges, we worship the sacred ficus, we worship the Tulsi. I mean, we have 300 million divinities. 300 million is the number of species on this planet. For us, everything is divine. Everything is absolutely permeated with divinity. All indigenous people think in those ways. Somewhere along the way, especially with the rise of capitalism, industrialism, um, a bunch of men in Europe said only we have full humanity, the Aboriginal people of Australia were not human, Native Americans were not human, none of us were human anymore. Women stopped being human, yeah? That's why they went, they were knocked out as witches. You know, they were too smart. You know, the, the women who were killed as witches were the healers of their time. And if you read the history of science, it's amazing. The father of modern science, Bacon, says, you can only know nature when you rape her. Therefore, you had to do violence against nature. He wrote a book called The Birth of Masculine Time, suggesting that knowledge that is embedded is effeminate, and disembedded knowledge is masculine. And so they distorted the definition of being male and being female, and defined the feminist as inferior. We now have an opportunity to re reclaim the feminine in all. You know, Gandhi, again, every day said a prayer, because he was such a deep believer in nonviolence. Every day he said a prayer in which one line was, make me more womanly. Here's a man saying, make me more womanly. Give me more feminine values so that I can care, I can nurture, I can have more compassion because his entire politics was based on compassion. So we you know, went from 300 million species to one species. And then we went to just a few of the people of that species. Now we've got a further reduction which is not even people of the species, a fiction that species has created, which is the corporation. It's the only inhabitant that has rights on the planet right now. So we have this historical moment to correct the insanity and the injustice that goes with this shrinking, to enlarge our world again to the earth and all her beings. We have a UN Declaration of the United Nations for the human rights. The idea of this declaration on the rights of Mother Earth is both to move it in society, so more and more people adopt it, and you can 
you know, if you, I'm sure if you Google uh, Universal Declaration of Rights of Mother Earth, you can download it. And I think it would be wonderful if the Boom Festival adopted this declaration and sent it out to the world and all of you put it to music and started to be even more creative around it. And of course, the other idea is to move it through the bureaucracy of the United Nations, which will be less creative, it'll be less quick, but we'll still do it. Why give up that space either? I think there's time for questions. Dr. Vandana, thank you for sharing all your knowledge to us tonight. Um, I also come from your side of the world, from Iran not too far, and I've been going many years to India, and something that I hear that you, you know, you're so active in India with all these matters, I'm wondering if you have any solutions for the garbage that is being, you know, thrown in the Ganges and all the other rivers, if there's any way in India that there's a solution for the garbage issue. Well, you know, India has moved literally in two decades from being a zero-garbage society to garbage-only society. And part of it is, you know, if, if you've lived centuries eating out of a leaf plate and you threw the leaf plate and the cow eats it, and now you're eating out of a styrofoam plate and you still throw it because you don't realize there's a difference when no one told you between styrofoam and leaf, um, so part of it is we've lived so much in a renewable society, people are now being pushed non-renewable materials that are piling up. The second is actually the food industry has a very big role. Because the food industry is getting into countries like India and having laws passed that say if food is not packaged, it's illegal. Yeah. So I would, you know, we I built up Navdanya, and I would love to just have sacks of jute and give people bags of jute to carry away their grain. We are not allowed to sell it that way. So everything has to be packaged. Our fruit, fresh fruit juice makers on the streets of Delhi have been banned in the name of food safety. So if I squeeze a few fresh oranges or good sugar cane, I can't do it. So it comes in that horrible Tetra Pak. Now, Tetra Pak is aluminium and plastic and paper piled up. So the food industry is creating a lot of food waste, as well as garbage. I mean, from any home, I watch. We try as much as possible to have totally fresh food, but I watch. Most of the garbage that goes out of our, the homes around us is packaging of food. So again, just like we have to celebrate the compost toilet, we have to celebrate fresh food. And we have to celebrate natural materials. And of course, because laws get twisted by corporate power, we have to deal with the influence corporations have on our decisions. And when you have to change decisions, it's easier to act where you are. And that's why from the local, we have to build. I mean, I really believe, my, you know, my last book is called Soil Not Oil. And uh, I'm saying, you know, of course, soil is the matrix for all life on Earth. But it's also the matrix of democracy. It's only when we grow democracy from the bottom up, we get real effective decisions. And, um, and you can see it in every sphere. You know, what, what's keeping GMOs at bay? Local movements. The GMO-free movement of Europe, local. European Commission gets sold all the time. 
but local communities and local government can work much better. You are listening to Boom, 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 boom. Radio.